Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. By the time you listen to this episode, Election Day in the United States will be underway or is even already behind us. Not only will we soon know who will be the new president of the United States in the coming years, We also know what the new U.S. Congress will look like, if there might be a chance of federal privacy legislation and an EU-U.S. adequacy deal maybe passing in the coming years. And we will also know if California Proposition 24 has made the grade. In this week's episode, no guests, just Kay and me, and we'll speak about political campaigns, maybe the CPRA, China's new data, data protection law, and more. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to serious privacy. So the unexpected question, I'm just going to dive right into the work here, Paul. Who did you vote for in the election? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I just lost it, but I know what the question is, is what is your favorite cereal? Ooh, I think that would be some muesli kind. So some grain, some fiber, some raisin, some fruits, and then with yogurt, not with milk. I oh, like I like that. I, I actually started eating that probably not, not too long ago, like 10 years maybe, and absolutely love it. I will say if I thought pure cereal, I mean, my favorite thing is I have oatmeal every morning. I just, I'm an oatmeal freak. But my favorite cereal would probably be Honey Nut Cheerios, and I can still have that. It's gluten-free. Very good. So that is wonderful. And I love, love, love the Honey Nut Cheerios. I just eat them as snacks when I travel. Whenever I was traveling back and forth to the office, I usually had a a little Ziploc baggie of Honey Nut Cheerios to munch on. You know, not irritating to people sitting next to you on a plane at all. (laughs) And then then milk or yogurt? Oh, milk. Absolutely. Because I never thought about using yogurt as the moisturizing, I guess, agent, which would be what it would be called. I yeah no I, I just don't like milk so that that's why I choose yogurt and even now I don't either sometimes I take the the soy based yogurt instead of dairy yeah I'm one, it's good for you I'm one of these people I can't drink milk just straight like people will get a glass of milk to drink it I I can't do it I can have it if but on cereal I do use completely fat free in my coffee and I can drink it if like I'm having something dry, like cake or a peanut butter sandwich or something, but only for to get me through that piece. I If I try to drink nope. a glass by itself. Nope. You do know what a typical Dutch lunch is, right? No. A uh, cheese sandwich and a, and a glass of buttermilk. Oh, I like that. And I hate that. <laughs> well, I'm going to be really controversial here and share that I don't like may- mayonnaise specifically. I like Miracle Whip. 
Miracle Whip light. And I don't know if that's something y'all have in Europe, but in the I US have, I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. In in the US it is a a controversial topic because a lot of people like real mayo and they laugh at Miracle Whip. It's not real mayo. I, I have no clue. I was raised on Miracle Whip. I'm from the South, but hey, I'm gonna disclaim I also like spam. I think I just lost about 50% of my friends with those two admissions. But, you know, that, that that's where we're going to go with that. But I'm Southern and, you know, I, ra- I was raised poor. I mean, not that someone deliberately raised me poor, but we were very poor. And I'm the first in my family to go to college. So that kind of, well, a bachelor's degree. My, my mom has an associate's degree in nursing, but I'm the first one in college. So essentially, you know, law degree and now doing my PhD, they don't have a clue, but that means I was raised eating mayo sandwiches. So you say you don't like cheese sandwiches. This is literally bread and Miracle Whip. That's it. And sometimes I still do that now just because it's, it's a comfort food for me. Well, the comfort foods are fine. I mean, and, and everybody has their own memories with food. That's right. One day we're going to make a food podcast as well, Kay. They, we should. And I think studies have shown that smells are t- attached to the strongest memories or maybe vice versa. The strongest memories carry smells with them. So and a mm-hmm. lot of that is wrapped up around food. Think about the smell of popcorn at a fair or something like that, or you're or making something on the grill that just, you know, the the apple pies and things that the the smell I My I mother's to... hazelnut cake coming fresh out of the oven See? in fall days when we had been collecting the hazelnuts ourselves. Yes, I do remember. It it's amazing. And here in Arizona, and I think I mentioned it before, uh some people actually put in cookie dough in their cars while they go to work in the summer. That way, when they come out from work and open their car, they have fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. So let's actually imagine. get to the topic of the podcast, which was well, not let's food. talk about controversial issues. Let's talk about the elections. Exactly. Let's do it. So here in the U.S., yes, I've already voted. I've been doing mail-in voting for many, many years, mainly because I just don't like to take the time away from whatever the heck I'm doing to go stand in polls. But I've been doing a lot of mail-in voting, and a lot of people have. And here in Arizona, they track it for you. I think they do in a lot of states, but I don't I don't have the information on which states do or not. But here in Arizona, you can actually uh, put in text messaging. Well, they'll send you messages. Picked up your, your ballot. Your ballot's at the main office. Your ballot is counted and registered. And that way you can track whether or not something gets lost. And so I didn't do the text messaging because, hello, privacy attorney. But you can log into the the office. Why can't I think of the name of the office for who counts the ballots? But you can log into the electoral board, something like that. You can log into the website for voting in Arizona and you can put in basic information and they will pull up whether or not your ballot has been counted or not. And so I actually have a screenshot that, you know, mine was counted on October 20th. So I have that. Very so nice. I love So they it. actually start the counting before the polls close. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They're, they count the mail-in votes immediately as they get them. And so typically we already know how many millions of people have already voted. Now we don't know what those votes are. There's no disclaimer or disclosure as to this person's leading now or not. We just know how many people have voted. And uh, there's been a big controversy in California because apparently there were fake or not approved. They're not fake, but not approved ballot boxes out that people could drop their ballots in as opposed to 
technical mail-in, they're, they're drop-offs, like early drop-offs. But these ballot boxes weren't approved officially. And so technically, since they are not the government-approved ballot boxes, there is a controversy over if anybody put their votes in there, are they really legitimate since they didn't give it to the government? They gave it to these private parties that are picking them up. And are we going to trust that the private parties picking them up aren't going to look at someone's name on the ballot because you have to sign the outside and you can put your phone number on it to be contacted if they have questions about whether or not this was your vote. Are they going to cross-reference the names or the cell phone numbers to the registered voters list and get rid of anyone they think might have voted the other way? We don't know. And apparently the state is choosing, last I heard, not to enforce or prosecute or limit these boxes. Wow. I'm, I'm always surprised by the concept of an electoral register with a party preference registered for, for who you who you are inclined to vote for. Right. Here in the Netherlands, we, we first of all, we don't register to vote. Across most European countries, you are automatically enrolled to vote once you are a citizen and come of age because right. you are part of a national citizen register. You have and I a, admit, I don't know why we don't do that. Number. Yeah, you have an identification number. So the government knows that you exist. I mean, the government knows who we right are. Vote. Well, they find you for Texas, right? So right. The, 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 the register exists and you just get your ballot or, or your your paper that you need to go to the polls and, and that's it. But and you vote. Nowhere is it registered who you are inclined to vote for. Well, in the Netherlands, that might be almost impossible with, I think in the next general election, we have about 40 parties participating. Oh, wow. And probably about 16 or 17 that will make parliament. But even then, why would you register something like that in a public register? And it's funny because you and I actually had that when we were developing, oh, I don't remember exactly what we were developing, but we were talking, maybe it was a notice or a policy or something, and we had the back and forth conversation about people's political party. And of course, the political party in Europe is special categories of data. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just political parties. It's political ideations. It's political Philosophy, Ideology, affiliation, anything. Anything with, with politics. And you said that special category is data. And I'm like, eh, you can't really call it sensitive data here in the U.S. since essentially in most states it's publicly available information. You can go download the registration lists. And I think that really threw you for a loop. Mm-hmm. So how is all that data used? I mean, <laughs> I can imagine that it will be will be used for a lot of targeted advertisement this time of year. It, and it's crazy because I'm sure that's how it is used because candidates can go on, I think, even if the state doesn't let, because I did some checking on this. And so if our listeners have more information, please, please uh, feel free to correct my misconceptions. But I went to a few states to see if I could get the voter registrations. Some you can download, some you can't. Some you can if you're a candidate. You can get those registrations. And I believe, and I'm going to, I think I can pull this up real quick and show you. Of course, we don't have the visual there. But if you see, yeah, I think this entire screen, and I'll hold it up to you, this entire screen are text messages from people on voting 
Wow. That's a lot. Even, even to the point, oh, let's see. Here's one. I'll show you this one. You can read yourself. I'm Grant with the Arizona Dems Public Records Show. You've already voted. That's awesome. Will you remind three friends to vote today? Wow. So even that information is already out. Yes. Now I can block the number. Typically, and leading up to this is the whole, you have this much more time to vote. Where the Dems have you. It's Mary Lou, a volunteer with the Arizona Democrats. We're 10 days out from election day. We need your help to get out the vote. Can you take action at a friend bank with us next week? Now, in most cases, now this friend vote, I'm, I'm not going to go work a, a bank. But so I'll probably say no and then block the number. So, yeah. So, yeah, let's just do the public service announcement for those of you listening on November 3rd. If you haven't voted yet, go vote. It is important, no matter who you vote for. But do go to the polls because it is your right and it is an important right that we should all use. But still, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by all this online campaigning. We, we see some of it here in Europe. I mean, I'm involved with a political party here in the Netherlands and we are pretty strict on privacy. And that annoys our campaign teams often because they want to go door to door and document everything from their conversations. And the privacy team within the party just says, no, you cannot do that. You can only document things at a very abstract level. You cannot say, oh, the person in Main Street number 15, the husband is going to vote a Christian Democrat and the wife is going to vote for the Greens. Uh, You cannot do that because we do not have a legal basis to process such information. You can say, well, we, we walk through Main Street and we had five people who said that they were going to, going to vote liberal and another five who said we're going to vote for the Animal Welfare Party and two for the Party for the Elderly. That's all perfectly fine. But as soon as it can be, as it becomes identifiable information, even on the basis of an address, it's just it's just not acceptable. And I find that very hard to understand how I mean, I see the added value for parties in, in, in having all that information. But it's added value for parties and candidates. It's not added value for the voter. No. I don't see how this is any added value whatsoever. You mainly get annoyed by the number of text messages, I assume, instead of being convinced, oh, no, this is certainly the guy or gal I'm going to vote for. Right, exactly. And, you know, here in the U.S., and I i don't know, since you said there's like 40 parties over there, there are people who absolutely die hard will vote the party line. They don't give a flip who is actually running. They don't care who, what they're running for. They don't care what their stance is. They don't care what actions they may have taken on votes in the past or if there's any indication of what they're going to do in the future. They will strictly vote straight down the party line. Now, I don't do that. I do consider myself an independent, which is funny, but I actually do register. And since this is public knowledge, because people look up the polls, I'm a registered Democrat and I tend to support the Democrat policies. But I don't vote for people because of party. I have learned that my views on a lot of issues coming from the Deep South are very, very conservative. But frankly, most of my views are very, very liberal. So it's interesting to consider myself a liberal, conservative, a moderate because I have the different. But that's how it drives the way I vote. So I don't understand people who vote strict party line 
My father-in-law was one of them. When he moved to Arizona, it was because it had always been a dream. And when he was here, he was in the hospital lot. And so 2016, and he was upset because he was a lifelong Republican. He had voted every single election since he was 18 years old. And this was going to be the first one that he had not voted. And we were coming up on the primaries. And I told him, I said, you know, you can register remotely. I said, I can print the papers from you. If my mother-in-law will bring your identification, we can get everything signed, mailed in. I'm sure the nurses will drop it in the mail for you. And he looked at me. He's like, Kay, why would you do that? when you know I'm going to pretty much vote opposite of you on every single matter, I will die for your right to vote. doesn't matter if you agree or disagree, but that's the way it should be. You absolutely have a right to vote. You should vote. And if you want to vote, that's what should happen. And that was actually a West Wing episode too, when (laughs) Donna accidentally voted wrong. And so that's how she met, uh, what's his name? The military guy. Jack Reese. Yes, was because she was trying to convince someone to vote the opposite of hers and let it be a wash, which I find the honor is amazing. Between people, when it comes to elections and issues, there's a deep sense of honor among people as to what they stand for and they don't. But I have to tell you, here in the United States right now, it's ugly. Yeah. It really is. Do you have ballot initiatives as well this time around in Arizona? Or is that just California? Oh, no, no, no. There's pretty much always ballot initiatives, and they can be local initiatives that are here in the the town I live in. Phoenix has, I don't know, 30-something townships. So there are local issues. I think there are county issues, too, and, of course, state issues and federal issues. So we have all kinds of ballot initiatives on it. And they're basically referenda, right? Yeah. Are you in favor or against this proposal or that proposal? Exactly. And people don't often know what they are. There's like a one-sentence explanation on it. But if you don't go research what it is, you may be misled by the the title of it or misled by the sentence. Because, you know, of course, whoever's putting it on the ballot, it might be the support veterans initiative. And so you think if you vote it support veterans, but if you actually went and read it, it would probably, it might be something you would not agree. I mean, of course it's related to vets, but it might not be. And so those parts are a little misleading, but here in Arizona, we also have judicial retention elections. So judges by state can be appointed or elected. There's no require thing by state to do it. Each state has their own. Here in Arizona, we appoint judges. So there's an application process and a view and the governor appoints, except for the justice of the peace, which is a local magistrate. They can actually run for office and they don't have to be attorneys. But for everyone else, they're appointed and you have to be an attorney. But in order to stay in office, we have retention elections. So pretty much every election, you have a list of 30, 50 judges that are up for their appointment time and voters select yes or no to keep the judges who you probably have no idea who they are and no what their record idea. is no and i'm not and i'm not a prosecutor or litigator or anything i don't go to court so i always reach out to my friends who do and like all right give me your rundown on judges you know they don't share it publicly but they'll share it with their friends but i was also doing participating in an effort called kids voting arizona where we go to classrooms virtual now And we do information sessions on what voting means and things. And then they actually have little ballots they could fill out that have much, much less information. Like they can vote for president, they can vote for the Arizona senator, and they can vote for three judge retentions. That's it. Well, I happen to have fifth graders, 
third graders and now kindergartners. I don't know how I'm going to explain this to kindergartners. It was hilarious, and one of them asked a question I don't know. If there is a tie in the retention votes of yes and no, who wins? I mean, does the judge stay or does it go? Apparently, in the Arizona Constitution, it doesn't say. Ah, interesting. <laughs> so then probably the governor's vote is decisive. You know, or, or however it is, I don't think that issue has ever been a matter. But frankly, I think the last major cycle, there were two judges who were considered not worthy of staying in their jobs by the majority of voters. And I do believe one of them was voted out. So it's interesting that, you know, the, the difference in the politics across the countries of the world, but how some things the voter still has the impact, you know. And so when you look at ballot initiatives, that, that's a pretty local thing. And still there are two that have made their way across the Atlantic and both yes. were launched by Alistair McTaggart. <laughs> Alistair, Alistair, I still want you to come on my show, dude. <laughs> we, of course, four years ago, we heard all about what's now the CCPA, which in the end didn't make it onto the ballot because the California state legislature decided to adopt the CCPA. But now we do have the actual ballot initiative for the CPRA on the ballot. Yes, so, and that actually came about because in the CCPA, they had gotten the approval, gotten the voters, but they had decided to work with the legislature, but they gave them a time frame. You have to pass something substantively, what our initiative is, within the next blankety-blank time. I think it was two weeks. And they literally passed it in eight days. But they were not pleased with the modifications that were made, but they had made the deal. They, you know, they passed the CCPA. So this time he did not work uh, with them. I'm sure he was approached and said, no, if this gets approved to go on the ballot, if we meet the requirements, it's going on the ballot. Now, there are a lot of privacy people that have come out in opposition of CPRA. And I think the one that resonates most with me, because you and I actually have talked about this a couple of mm -hmm. times about, I didn't really understand the impetus behind opposing it. Based on the Twitter storm from the ACLU, I didn't really understand the opposition. So I started doing some looking into it. And some of our privacy friends, people I respect, have actually made statements on it. And there was a letter published. Ian Ballon was one of the ones. I love Ian. I respect the heck out of him. That made me really sit down and pay attention to what are the privacy professionals' objections to this. Now, there are more privacy people that have come out in support of it. But I did look at them, and I'll tell you, the one that resonates the most with me is the fact that if this is passed, you can no longer make modifications to it. Any modifications will have to be another ballot initiative. Now, can they get around it by passing different laws, specific issues, things like that? I'm sure they can. Politics always finds a way. But it means that the CCPA or the CPRA, as it will become, will not be able to be amended by legislature, which means that if there are, we're, we're already upset enough that the laws don't move fast enough to protect privacy, now it's going to move even slower. It's going to really be slow. So do I support the CPRA? Yes. I, I'm glad I'm not in California and have to vote on it because then I'd really have to come to a decision. But I think privacy people that claim, oh, yes, it's job security is not a good enough reason. I think it needs to do what privacy needs to do. But California is leading the way in having state laws on privacy. And that's fantastic. And I think a lot of states are going to look to this and learn. So that's going to be awesome. 
the fact that they're looking at having a consumer privacy protection agency, I think is a fantastic idea. A lot of people have said they don't. I believe that's actually a good idea. If you formalize an institution that is to protect consumer rights and focus on particular issues, then those institutions as regulatory agencies or administrative agencies have the expertise to decide these matters. And I believe that really pushes privacy to the forefront of being an issue, which, of course, has not been an issue on the presidential election side. As we know, I mean, why would privacy ever be an issue that candidates would debate and talk about when they're looking at getting elected unless privacy is a big issue in the country, the locality that they're running in? And privacy just really isn't a big issue in most places. No, it's true. Although there are some election campaigns that have been tainted by privacy issues. Mm, and a we lot. Know that, and we know that the past series of elections in, in both the US and the UK have, of course, been tainted by Cambridge Analytica and the the influence of data misuse by certain certain actors. So maybe it should be more of an issue. I think it should be. In talking to family members or friends about these issues, you know, which most people in order to keep good relationships don't talk politics, but talking privacy implications to politics. So two things, of course, stick out are people, entities, countries, foreign actors interfering in results by hacking the voting system, which has happened. It's made news before, things like that. So, yes, we know what happens. We also know that targeted behavioral advertising has been used massively across social media, which delivers content to people to give them the right or the wrong impression on what's going on. So if they literally target you on your street to tell you that your poll is three miles long and people aren't getting in and whatever, you're going to believe it rather than going to the poll and looking. And so this disinformation that is shared, and there was a wonderful memo put out by, I believe it was the head of marketing at Facebook around the whole Cambridge Analytica, but also touching on election interference and things like that, that was that was wonderfully eye-opening in, in the position that he took. And I'll see if I can't find that to post that as well. But also, if, not even talking foreign actor influence, although I think it could, it's also the bots. And when I talk about bots, people talk to me like I'm going down the conspiracy theory route in bots. But this is actual evidence that there was a woman running in one of the states. I don't remember exactly what the issue was, so I'm going to use DUI as the issue. And so when I teach privacy and I ask my students about this, they say, oh, of course, targeted behavioral advertising, social media, none of this influences my decision, right? But in this case, it was an issue that wasn't an issue. It was not an issue. The underlying issue may have been true. I'm going to say it was a DUI. I don't know what it was. But it had, under influence. Yeah, it had been, thank you. It had been like 30 years ago. It was not an issue in the political campaign, and she was an incumbent. However, these bots picked it up, and when you have 30 to 50,000 bots arguing over an issue, all of a sudden you're being told you do care. And they take the extreme view. They'll take the underlying issue that is true. So if you do research, you'll find out it really did happen. So it's not a lie. It's not fake news. 
But the bots will take extreme views and they'll get people polarized. And now all of a sudden an issue that you really don't care about. I don't care if my candidate had a DUI 30 years ago. Now you care because if 30, 50,000 bots are talking about it, well, if one of them, one person talks about it, you're doubling the number. Now you have 100,000 people talking about an issue that's not an issue. She had to drop out of the race and she was an incumbent. That's how they can manipulate elections. And people, you know, they think, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. No, it's really not. And most of us in privacy that that look at these issues understand it's really not. We, we know the technology is there. We know it happens. And we know that individuals are not inclined to do deep research on their own. And when I say deep research, I mean more than the first three pages when you Google something. They're not willing to do and actually read those first three rather pages. than the headlines, rather than the headlines and the opening sentence, which is deliberately there to grab your attention and to make you think a certain opinion. But if you were to read further into it, you would find out that it's different. Uh, a recent example was on a CDC clinical trial about people who get COVID-19 and whether or not they wore masks or didn't wear masks. The headline made it look like people who wear masks actually get COVID more. Which, of course, if you went and you read the results and you looked at it, it wasn't true at all. And they actually said that in the article. But the headline in the first two sentences of the first sentence was very misleading. And that's what people are going to believe. Well, this was a CDC trial. This was this is validated result. No. And so would you think there should be privacy issues in election? Would you think there should be privacy issues in technology or not technology, but in... <sighs> People, he wouldn't, but it is. And I know, Paul, you're looking at my face and I'm just so discouraged about how this issue is so important and yet it is so ignored. Yeah, I'm actually very curious how it will play out because we have our general election coming up in the Netherlands in March. So all parties are now shaping up to get their electoral lists published. So who are the candidates? The Netherlands works with a list system, so we don't just vote for whoever wants to be prime minister, but we actually vote for the members of parliament, not in a district, just at national level, but okay. you can vote whoever on the candidate list you want to vote for. And that all has to be done online. Establishing the party manifesto, which is also uh, an important part, so the platform on which you are running, what do you want to achieve in the next term of parliament, also that is something that has now to be done digitally. And in, in my party, we're actually going through that process right now. The draft manifesto was published, I don't know, about a month ago, and the party members have been able to submit their proposals for amendments in the past couple of weeks. We have reviewed those for all the formal requirements and are now uh, bringing those to a vote. But usually what we do is vote on all those amendments, or at least on a very large selection of those, at a physical party conference where we can actually debate them and where you can try to persuade each other that we should go more to the left or more to the right, be more progressive or be more conservative, change the numbers. I, I don't know. We can debate that. But now everything has to be done online, which is taking more time. Not everything can be discussed because then then everybody would really go Zoom crazy. And we already have, I don't know, five or six two-hour sessions just to oh, wow. for debate of, of party manifesto issues. And then we have to go into the campaign. And in the Netherlands, campaigns are still very traditional that we go 
out into the streets and hand out leaflets with party preferences and we knock on doors and all of that will be very difficult now with with covid with people being told to stay home with people being socially distant so you can you can predict already that a lot of the campaign will also have to move online and and to television and and, and radio and the newspapers of course but that was already there but doing all of that online i'm very curious to see how that will play out but also what kind of privacy protections the parties will take, if any. And I, I fear that a lot is is not being properly taken care of and that we will get quite a few data breaches following this election cycle. Yeah, it's concerning. It's concerning. And who would have thought 10 years ago, 50 years ago, that privacy would be such a big issue in elections, right? Well, as and as we said, it's not an issue for most people, but those watching what it is. And I think the last one I'll touch on before we end today is, of course, we're going to do a webinar in mid-November that is touching on the outcome of the elections. And we're not going to be political. We're just going to touch on, oh, CPRA did or did not pass or the implications for U.S. federal privacy law, given what the outcome of the election may be. And this will be based on senators and what their positions have been, as well as the presidential, or more specifically, the vice presidential election and what that might mean. Because Kamala Harris is a very staunch privacy advocate. I became a big fan of hers back when she was attorney general in California. And there was, you know... A, a Twitter thing about two airlines that didn't have good privacy notices. And she actually let them know that, which was kind of cool and made her, you know, I became a big fan. Then there's a lot of other things about her politically, but she is a staunch privacy advocate. So depending on the ad outcome of the election, privacy on a federal level may become a bigger issue quicker, depending on what it is. If, the regime doesn't change and it stays the way it is, we're going to face another four years of is privacy an important enough federal issue in order to get some substantive legislation passed, which we've discussed before. The biggest issues are mainly the private right of action and the enforcement levels and everything. But if the U.S. doesn't pass something strong, if they just pass something weak and watered down, it's not going to have an impact. We're looking for something strong like HIPAA. I mean, HIPAA in the U.S. is a very strong privacy law. May have some issues, but it's a very strong privacy law. GLBA, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, is a very strong privacy law. We have very strong privacy laws, but we don't have them generally applicable. My view, we need something that strong. On a federal level. And I think there is one country that has that same focus, and that is China. And as you will have seen earlier in, in, in the week, yes. on October 21st, China unveiled their draft privacy legislation that has been rumored for, I don't know, about 10 years, I guess. It has been on the five-year plan for many, many years, but the draft law is now here. It's open for consultation, actually, which surprised me very much, but Apparently, we can submit comments to the Chinese government until November 19 on the Chinese draft privacy legislation. And it is very GDPR-like. It is pretty strong. It applies to data processing in China, obviously, but also for two companies offering goods and services to people in China 
for companies monitoring behavior of people in China. Where did we hear that before, those formulations? It has a strong focus on individual rights, company obligations like appointing a data protection officer, like appointing a representative if you want to do business in China and process personal data, mandatory impact assessments, right of access. Does this all start sounding familiar? Strict consent requirements, limitations on data transfers. So, yes, and there will be an oversight buddy, the state cyberspace administration. oversight buddy. Who can also impose sanctions up to 15 million yuan, which is about $7.5 million, or seven or 5% of annual turnover. We've heard that 5% in a draft legislation before as well. That was the original threshold in the GDPR. The only carve-out seems to be that data that is necessary to maintain public safety is not covered. And that, as we all know, in China can be a very broad carve-out. So it seems that the legislation, not a big surprise, but that it will mainly apply to the private sector and not so much to the government. Nevertheless, this is a very big step forward in terms of offering privacy protection because it is another 1.4, 1.5 billion people that will then have enforceable privacy rights. On top of the ones in India, the 1.2 billion in India, which will have those same rights probably sometime next year as well, then we have more than, than well, no, about half of the world's population covered um, by GDPR-like laws. And yeah. that is that is a pretty big step forward. Whatever you may think of the political situations in any of those countries, whether that is China or the US or India, Having strong privacy laws in any of those countries, in my view, is is unprecedented. And I'm really looking forward to to hear more about the debate on the Chinese Data Protection Act. Right. If any of our listeners are in China or work with China and have good knowledge about the debate that we can expect on this legislation, please come forward. We'd love to have you on the show as well and have a, a full episode dedicated to, to China. Okay, before we wrap up, any... Other things that are on your privacy mind this week. I'm looking forward to the webinar we're doing in November from TrustArc on the issues coming following the election results. I think it's going to be pretty fascinating. I have a, a I really agree. good. I look forward to listen to it. I have a really good speaker lined up, but I can't say who it is because they can't confirm until after the election results. Well, that makes sense, but it's always <laughs> nice to have Vice President-elect Kamala Harris on the on the webinar. Yeah, I wish. Okay. So that concludes another episode of Serious Privacy, just us this week. But nevertheless, if you like the series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Rate and review us in your favorite podcast application. I saw some charts. I think we are somewhere number 49 of podcasts in Armenia. I I, I don't know about those charts, but do (laughs) rate and review us. That is always nice. And should you have questions or suggestions, especially when it comes to voting and to China, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustart.com or via Twitter at @podcastprivacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Thank you again for listening to Serious Privacy and until our next episode. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey. 
Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.